afternoon, brothers and sisters. Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Boy, if rugby was just singing hymns, I think I'd like it even more. And it is kind of fun at those rugby games just to hear the old hymn tunes that come out as well. I'm not sure exactly how Christian every maneuver that's made on the field is. But hopefully, forgiveness covers everything at the end of every match. We're going to talk about the most powerful cleansing agent in the world today. We're going to talk about the blood of Jesus. And what an amazing thing the blood of Jesus is. We have this study just in Hebrews 9 and part of 10. Just to really think about this image of the sacrifice of the Son of God. And what what God wants us to understand about that as we read about the sacrifice and think about what sacrifice means. So let's turn over Hebrews 9. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. There was the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people have committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, External regulations applying until the time of the new order. You know, it really hits me as I read through this. It's just as the Hebrew writer talks about what was going on in the Old Testament, he makes it sound like like it was it was just ritual, like it wasn't that important. And yet, if you were there in the moment, in the time, it would have been important. You know, if you could, uh, who, who likes time lapse photography? You see those pictures where all the cars are moving really quick and everything? And it's kind of cool when you have time-lapse photography because you can see where there's activity and where there's, there's not. And if you were to do time-lapse photography of the temple or of the tabernacle and watch all the activity of the priests, everybody would be scurrying around the courtyard. There'd be all this motion constantly. And then there'd be a little less, but there'd still be consistent motion in the holy place. But in the most holy place... Once a year, one priest would go in, spend a little time in there, and then come out. And that was it. And what the writer here is saying, that's really what I want you to focus on right now. That's the most important part. Now you think about all the Jews that were involved, all the the, the Levites and all the priests that were involved in all of this, maintaining the temple, keeping it all going, preparing the animals for sacrifice, 
sacrificing the animals, killing them, doing the right thing with them, putting the blood here, the meat here, burning this, keeping that, putting that aside, all this different stuff. I mean, it's in a, it's, we have a whole book in the Old Testament just outlining all these rules. And yet what he says is these were simply external regulations. All these sacrifices really were just looking forward to one single sacrifice. And of all the activity taking place, the thing that most represented what was to happen was the annual visit of the high priest going into that most holy place. It was the Day of Atonement. And just once a year. And so he makes a statement here uh, in verse 9. It says that the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. That's really interesting, and that's kind of what we're going to get into in the center of this lesson is, what does he mean by that, clearing the conscience? What is the purpose? Because it says that these things couldn't do it. These external rules and regulations couldn't cleanse the conscience. We'll read a little further, then pick this up in verse 11. It says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of, of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the internal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant." Well, the first thing I, w- I want to just discuss here for a second is the conscience. And there's a really great text in the New Testament describing how the conscience works. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 2, verse 12. The conscience is one of those things everybody has, but we all don't have exactly the same conscience. There's something about being human that gives us the capacity to gain a conscience. I don't know if you notice this. um, We we look at little children and we say they they look innocent, right? I was just holding Mia a a moment ago, or at least just touching her. And she's four months old, and uh, she just woke up, and her eyes are kind of sleepy. And she looks at you with these big eyes. Innocence is written all over those eyes. Innocence. But you know what's interesting is, Mia has no conscience yet. She'll think nothing about waking up her mother at any time she needs her. You know, there won't be any twinge of thought. Well, should I make a noise right now? Should I try to get some of those big people attention? No. If there is a need, she'll just express it. No conscience interfering whatsoever. Now read the scripture just to get some insight about conscience. 
Romans 2, verse 12. It says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, there was a bit of conflict happening in the Roman church, and sadly, those that had a Jewish background and those that didn't were sort of being critical of each other, and there were some acceptance issues. And basically, Paul is making an argument that everybody is the same, whether you have the law or not. So he goes in verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now it's interesting, he says... That even though the Gentiles don't have the law, they can actually show what the right response to the law is, and that is by being obedient. What the law required is obedience. And you may not know the Jewish law, but every one of us has a conscience, and that conscience, from the time we began to develop it, tells us what is right and what is wrong. And that conscience also witnesses to us we should do what is right. You know, we, we have a feeling inside. Doing what is right, uh, it sounds redundant, is right. But our own conscience sort of works to, to say that is right. We, have, we, have, we make a moral judgment here. So the requirement of the law was obedience. And those that have a conscience and try to do what the conscience says is right, they show that they have the requirement of the law written on their heart too. That they are obeying what they think is right. James 4.17 said this, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. In other words, if you know, if your conscience says this is right, then you should do it. Because what that requires is action. Because this, this is the legal side of things, okay? So our conscience is the part of us that makes moral judgments. Sometimes accusing or condemning our actions, sometimes defending or affirming. Conscience isn't always bad. Conscience also pats, pats you on the back. I did a good thing. Now, you, do you ever pat yourself on the back? Now, maybe you don't do it physically, but in your own heart, hey, I know I did something right. Again, that's your conscience. And Paul said about a conscience, you know, my conscience is clear, but it doesn't make me innocent. At the end of the day, don't use your conscience in the way that some of the Pharisees were trying to use the law. In other words, to claim a righteousness for themselves. And see, really, that's what's happening. He, he says at the end of this text we just read, uh, in verse 15, Christ is the mediator of, of a new covenant, that, sorry, back in uh, chapter 9, verse 15, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You know, we maybe weren't Jews here. There might be one or two people here raised Jewish. I'm, I'm not aware of anybody. Uh, but, you know, if you were raised under that covenant, then you would have had to give up that covenant to become a Christian and, and follow the new covenant. But actually, this is written for us, too, because what the law did was just embody principle 
ordained by God. It was a declaration of right and wrong. And therefore, it was, in a sense, the written down conscience of God. Right and wrong. Making moral judgment. And so a community of people could actually know what God said was right and what God said was wrong. And they would know God's moral judgment. But see, most of us weren't raised with that. But we were raised with a conscience. And see, we sin, when we sin, our consciences condemn us. Whether we know the law or not, our consciences tell us that was wrong. Is that the common experience? Does your conscience send up a flag when you do something wrong? Okay, that's, that's okay. That's how God made you. Okay, that's how your conscience is supposed to react. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's your conscience that makes you different from the animals. Our conscience and our capacity for love make us different than the animals. It's completely different. What it says about the law, the law was added so trespass might increase. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. You know, it, these things, the law just made us made it clear what right and wrong was. Just in case you don't think you're a sinner, God gave us the law. Just, just in case. Just in case you had any doubt that you'd ever done anything wrong, check the Scripture, and you'll, you'll understand, yes, I've sinned and I've fallen short of God's glory. So it talks here about our consciences being cleansed from these acts that lead to to death. And you know, it's funny, what is this? Well, it could be just the, the uh, ritual law that we were talking about, but it actually can be us trying to justify ourselves. You know, you, you could try to use the Jewish law to justify yourself, to prove yourself righteous, but it's impossible because actually, in the end, you will fail. But more than that, we all have our consciences, and if we feel guilty, guilt separates us from the person against whom we've sinned. And so if we don't get rid of the guilt, we can't approach God. If we have guilt in a relationship, how do we feel? You know, you notice this when you're raising your kids, right? And they do something wrong, and then suddenly they're not looking at you anymore. Suddenly they're not looking you in the eye. Suddenly there's something between you and them, and you don't know what it is. But you see something in your eye, and you, you want to ask them, what are you thinking about right now? You know, but something is going on inside. You see, sadly, forget about the law condemning you. Forget about somebody else condemning you. Let's talk about where condemnation really happens in our own hearts. Our own consciences are telling us that we've done something wrong. And they're condemning us. And Jesus came to actually apply forgiveness to our hearts to cleanse our consciences in a way that we never could. So to be truly set free from guilt, it's only possible that our sense of justice is satisfied. If, if justice isn't satisfied, you can't get rid of whatever's going on in your heart. It's, it will linger there. You will know that something's not right. And... and Think about this. As you were sacrificing an animal in the Old Covenant, you put its hand, your hand on its head. If it was a sin offering, you cut its throat. You felt the life go out. You were making the sacrifice. 
And, and you could see all that happening. But you look at it and you go, how does that take away my sin? Now, the law said, if you do that, that will make atonement for your sin. But that's simply atonement through faith, through the, through the words of God, because there's nothing in the blood of the goats or of the lambs that takes away your sin. And if you had a really, like, a, an active conscience, you'd be thinking, how does this work? How can this animal dying actually get rid of my sin? But God told me to do that, and at least I know I'm doing right in that, so my conscience will affirm that I've done what God asked me to do. And God said this will provide atonement, so I will do it. But the fact is, it was always for something I've, I've already done. It wasn't for the sins in the future. And it was only for the things I could realize that I was done. I mean, once a year in the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, the offering was for the sins that the people did unconsciously. It was for the sins they didn't know that they had done. And so, the conscience, though, tells us what we have done, and we feel guilty, and guilt separates us. And that guilt needs to be removed. You know, conscience is a, is a thing that people think about all the time. I was uh, thinking about what's on TV these days and movies. And interestingly, the, the two themes, the number, like the one and two themes in movies, the first one is love and romance. That's nice, right? Some good romance, okay? If only Hollywood could actually figure out what love really was. But anyways, in theory, there's a few good things said occasionally, and we understand the idea of it, and we all love the idea of being in love. But you know, another theme that just, just takes up so much movie time and so many TV shows is justice. And, uh, you know, all this whole superhero craze, you know, which, which I find kind of entertaining myself personally. But it's all about justice. It's all about somehow the, the system's not working and this hero's going to step in. Now, the sad thing is there's always a matching supervillain with, you know, with powers and you know, it, it doesn't change the world, unfortunately. But the point is this. People are consumed with these ideas. I need love and I need justice. I need freedom from my guilt. People need these things desperately. And I appreciate so much the way that James pre presented the Lord's Supper. Because we need to partake in this sacrifice. As we break the bread and as we drink the cup, this is a participation in the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a communion. We're doing the bread. We, we all, obviously, it's not our blood. Obviously, it's not our body. But he's allowing us to be part of it and to remember what he's done for us. God is the one making the sacrifice, not us. You know, and, and think about what we did before we were Christians. How did you try to get rid of guilt before you were a Christian? There are a lot of people talk about in the world, well, if you do something bad, then you need to go do something good, and it will balance out in the end. Does doing good balance out doing bad? Well, there's this whole world religion is based on this very principle, the karma principle, but we know it's not true. If you've done wrong, the only thing that can heal that is forgiveness. And forgiveness is a gift from the one that's giving it. And so the only way for us to be healed spiritually is to accept God's forgiveness. Let's read a little further here. 
In Hebrews chapter 9, we'll read verses 16 to the end of the chapter. It says, In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because in a will, a will is enforced only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the wool in all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Now, that's good news, right? Jesus' second coming is good news for those who are waiting for Him. You know, this this history of sacrifice, God had planned before the world was made. It says over in 1 Peter 1, 18-20, that before the creation of the world, God had planned to offer the blood of Jesus a lamb. Before there was lambs, before there was blood, God had already made up His mind that there would be a sacrifice given for us. You know, if you look through the Scriptures, the shedding of blood, the first shedding of blood we have is Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned, and when God went to visit with them that day that they sinned, they were hiding from them. Their consciences were filled with shame and guilt. And so God came, and God hadn't said anything yet. They separated themselves from Him. Our guilt and shame separate us from God. But what did God do? Well, they made clothing for themselves out of uh, fig leaves. But as soon as God turned up, they went hiding, because they knew that God would see their clothing. They were ashamed of how they were covering up. And so God made them clothing out of animal skins, and as far as we know, this is the first animal death, the first shedding of blood, so that they could, their nakedness could be covered and they could stand before God confidently. It was symbolic of what was to come. Cain and Abel offered sacrifices. Abel offered the first uh, yearling of his flock. Cain offered fruit of the land, of the ground. And Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, Cain's wasn't. Most likely because it involved the shedding of blood. Cain's didn't. Genesis 9, after the ark, 
uh, Moses, I'm sorry, Noah came out, and he, he, and he took some of the animals and offered them in sacrifice and praise to God. Genesis 22, after having offered animal sacrifice a number of times, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, which he did, or at least he was willing to. And God stopped him right at the last moment. And then we have the whole Levitical system. We have the Passover. And we have a lot of sacrifice. Think how many animals died before Jesus came. Now, some of them were birth sacrifices, so he didn't get any of the meat back. Some of them were fellowship offerings, so he did get part of it back. Some of the offerings, the priests got part of it. It was their support. But at the end of the day, think of the hundreds of thousands, probably millions. And Jesus dies on the cross, and all that is gone. Never needs to be repeated. It's done. Why? Because our being forgiven isn't about our goodness. Our being forgiven isn't about us answering good for bad. Oh, I'm bringing back the scales. Our being forgiving is, forgiven is accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, with a clear conscience, because if God says, I forgive you, do we need anything more? And they say, well, God, how do I know you do that? Because it's not just for you to forgive me. It would be unjust. I won't receive what I deserve. He goes, look at my son on the cross. He's receiving what he didn't deserve. Because I'm telling you, this is what forgiveness is. It's receiving what you don't deserve. And he received what he didn't deserve, so you could receive what you don't deserve. Forgiveness eternally. An eternal relationship with me. You don't need to be ashamed anymore. Whenever there's sin in your heart, cover it with the blood of Jesus. It's there already, but we have to acknowledge it. We continually come into the light. It's there. The sacrifice has been made. We don't make it again. But we need to think about it. James asked a great question. How often do we think about Jesus? And I hope that there's just, your life is full of things that just remind you constantly of who Jesus is and what He's done. But we need to learn to be reminded as well, to look for those reminders around us. Jesus, Christ's sacrifice was so perfect and complete, it just needed to be done once. Can you imagine how mind-boggling that is for a Jewish person after 1,000 years of offering sacrifices? That we're, it's all done now. One person on the cross makes all the difference. Jesus Christ. Well, it said back in Hebrews 7 that Jesus' life was indestructible. A sheep is not indestructible. If you kill a sheep, it's dead and it stays dead. You know, it's interesting. An infant, though they're innocent, are also not indestructible. Because an, an, an infant hasn't proven morally that they are righteous or right. They haven't made the right decision. They haven't made any decision. And so, Jesus, though, lived to the age of 33, which I used to think was old, but now I realize is fairly young. He lived to the age of 33, and he had many opportunities to sin. He was tempted just as we were, and yet he didn't sin. And when he was killed, his life was indestructible. Indestructible. Death 
couldn't have told him. Because it wasn't a speculation. Well, maybe he would have continued innocent. He had proven who he was. That he was the righteous son of God and that he was willing to die for our sins. Jesus proved by his sinless life that he did not deserve death. And that sacrifice has the power to save everyone. But it is the blood of the covenant. There's a covenant involved. There's, there's a relationship with God that Jesus is inviting people into, that we as his ambassadors are inviting people into. Let's just read again in Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With their offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Jesus, to become the perfect sacrifice for us, had to actually become like us. And that's what the book of Hebrews keeps repeating over and over again. But then he had to, unlike us, live perfectly. And then sacrifice himself for us. And he accomplished all that. And, and it's not the sacrifice and offering that God wanted. It was actually the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what forgives us. It's His sacrifice. All the animals in the world can't change our guilt. But the blood of Jesus, God giving up His right to punish us, sacrificing that on the cross, that is our forgiveness. Verse 11, he says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has been made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put their laws in their heart, my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Forgiveness is so complete that our relationship with God is like we've never sinned. And as we are in relationship with Him, the blood of Christ continually purifies us. Now, if we were Jews and we were feeling guilty, we might go out and kill a lamb. 
We might go and kill a goat. We might offer some kind of sacrifice. Because that was our habit. But that's not our background. But what did we do when we felt guilty? Did we try to do a little extra good to balance out the bad? Did we try to achieve some kind of righteousness on our own? So we didn't follow the law. But we have a conscience. And you can use your conscience just like you could use the law. In fact, the law was given so we'd understand there is an absolute right and wrong. So, we're not Jews, we're not going back to that, but do we go back to our old way of thinking? Of trying to justify ourselves rather than simply accept the blood of Jesus. And this is amazing, really, because the only thing we need to do is remember That's why He gave us the communion. Baptism is a one-time action. We believe the gospel, we repent, we're baptized, we're immersed in water. It's a submission into into the water. It's a submission to His will. But in it, we are enacting His death and resurrection. And He has promised in that moment to give us forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then forgiveness of sins, that Spirit works in us. His blood continually purifies us. Unless we turn away from it. Now, if you were a Jew, you might do like the Galatians, or some of the Galatians were doing, and try to start getting back into the law and talking about the law. But we're not Jews, but we might get into our same worldly thinking, trying to earn our forgiveness from God when it's already been paid for. Trying to earn our standing before God, when in fact we can have a better standing than we had the moment we were baptized. It doesn't get any better. You can't get any more forgiven. And it's not like you come out of the water and you go, Did you see how skillfully I held my breath? Did you see how submissive I was as I let that person put me under? It's not about us. It's not about what we do. We come up out of the waters of baptism celebrating the forgiveness of God because of what He did. You know, I had a chance to uh, uh, meet with an evangelical pastor of one of the larger evangelical churches here in Birmingham. And um, it, was, it was a fairly interesting discussion. Um, it had to do with how we are cooperating and working together with the Christian Union at the university campus. And basically, we don't conscribe to the evangelical statement of faith right there. So because of that, because we believe you have to be baptized to be saved, that that's what God has asked us to do, to enter into a covenant relationship with Him, to be born again, because we believe that, we can't be part of that group. So anyways, it was interesting talking to Him Because, uh, well, first of all, he pulled out two little pamphlets, printouts. One was from 1992, and the other one was from 2001. And these are things that people had written about our church, you know, from the university's point of view, or from the CU's point of view back then. And I said, you know, we've been there now for uh, seven years. We've had students on campus. I said, what are they saying about us now? And he goes, well, we haven't really heard about you. And I'm kind of like, well, that's kind of good and that's kind of bad. I don't know. You know, I don't really know how to react to that exactly. But, but the point is, there's nothing bad been saying lately. But when we got into a discussion, he goes, well, he goes, really, your, your, your students are welcome to come to our events, but you can't cooperate with us because you don't believe the same thing we do. 
And, and, and I just said to him, I have a question. Let's forget about how someone becomes a Christian. What, what do you believe is necessary for someone to remain a Christian? And he said, well, they have to have faith. And I said, what does that faith mean? And he said, well, it's got to be a living faith. And the conversation is a little longer, but these are the, the highlights. It's got to be a living faith. That faith has to be somehow expressed in action. It can't just be acknowledgement. It's got to be something. And I think so So you're saying that the faith a, a Christian needs is a, a, a faith that they act on, right? There's something they're doing that shows that faith. He said, yes, if faith needs to be expressed in action. And I said, well, what's odd is that's how we believe you become a Christian. That's what baptism is. Baptism is simply a, an action expressing your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's how it works. But that's why it works. And there's nothing in the action itself. And it was kind of satisfying because he wrote me back another little letter summarizing some of the things we talked about. And he wrote that down, he said, and he was making a correction. They don't believe that baptism saves you in and of itself like an action. They believe that baptism is the response of faith to God that saves you. I said, well, okay, he, he understood what I was saying. But what's interesting is, he would say, well, you're saved when you just acknowledge Jesus, when you just have this acknowledgement. But faith in the Scripture always expresses itself in some kind of action. Not an action I've determined. It's an action that God has determined. We express our faith through obedience to God. And so, how you stay a Christian is how you become a Christian. It is quite simple. Well, let's just close out. We'll read together uh, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Do you know what he's saying? We enter into God's presence by the blood of Jesus. Whenever you want to. You don't even have to leave. You can be like Joshua, who never left the tent of meeting. You can stay there. But, you know, we wander, don't we? We forget about who we are. And it's so sad. The world distracts us. We've got other obligations, etc. We need to find ways where those obligations remind us that we're Christians. Not distract us from being Christians. But he says here, We have confidence entered the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The first voice says, let us draw near to God. Amen. What could be more encouraging than that? To get closer to God, drawing near. Now, Jesus, in a rebuke in Revelation chapter 3, says, I'm standing at the door and knocking, talking about the hearts of some of the disciples. I'm knocking. You've actually pushed me outside. I'm knocking. This isn't a plan of salvation. This is the Christian struggle. Open up and let Jesus in. Draw near to God. Don't push Him out. 
But also, he says, basically, draw near to each other. You know, we need each other. Don't give up meeting together. Oh, but I don't need anybody else because I can go into the most holy place all by myself. Yes, you can. You totally can. I'm not saying you can't. That, that invitation brings you in individually into God's presence. But he's also saying here, let's help each other. As the day approaches, let's not let anyone wander away. Let's not let even someone miss the opportunity of finding out that could respond to the gospel. Let's not give up meeting together. You know, we have some more invitations there on the, uh, uh, on the table by the doorway. Next week we have a program with David Bruce coming, which I really believe could be a great help, not just to us personally, but to many of our friends, to really learn and understand how the mind works from a scriptural point of view, and learn how to develop good habits from a scriptural point of view. David's very Bible-based. He's going to help us understand some, some, I would say, basically everyday wisdom from the counseling world, but with a biblical you know, filter on it. And I think it will be greatly uh, exciting for us. And also then, in another week's time, we'll have an international service. Just to get a time. Let's not give up meeting together. But you know, that's not just the schedule of the church. Let's not give up meeting together every day. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, it said, we need to encourage each other every day. Let's not give up. But if we've got a hall rented, and you know disciples are going to be there, be there. Let's not give up meeting together. But more importantly, it's got to be at the primary first. Let's, let's not give up drawing closer to God. Let us draw near. The way has been opened. But we're not God's prisoners in the Holy of Holies. We're His invited guests. And we can leave if we want to. We can wander. We can turn our back. We cannot pay attention. He is telling us here, come in. Jesus paid the price for us so that we could have our consciences clean, our sins forgiven, and an intimate, close relationship with God. It doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray together as the worship team comes up and takes a place. Our Father and God, we thank you for your amazing plan. And Father, it's amazing to think how you work through hundreds of years of human history establishing the Old Testament covenant in the minds of the Jewish people, building a tabernacle, later a temple. And Father, the continual offering of sacrifices day after day, year after year. And yet, Father, we know that all of this was simply symbolic. It was simply to instruct us about the truth of what would happen through Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you that you have offered a sacrifice that we could never make ourselves. And Father, there's nothing we could do to atone for our own sins. There's nothing we could do to make the wrong right. But Father, you have given us the perfect solution in the blood of Jesus. That we can, in fact, be 100% cleansed of our sin and guilt. Father, it's so tempting to return to old ways of thinking in our own minds. Father, in our own systematic way of thinking, however we did when we were in the world. And Father, I pray that we can keep that out of our church fellowship. I pray that we can keep that out of our own minds. Father, that we can only think about the blood of Jesus. 
to rather the sacrifices being a constant reminder of sin, I pray that the, the blood of Jesus can be a constant reminder of His forgiveness and Your grace. Father, You have done so much for us. Help us draw near to You and to each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.